especially in the middle of this pandemic, um, it's made me realize how much I, I miss those interactions. Um, but I really appreciate, you know, the last five years you've been in the lab and so look forward to your defense. Uh, well, thank you, Alex. It's a really nice introduction. So thank you also for all of you being here. Um, obviously this isn't necessarily the way I hoped and dreamed of doing my defense, but I'm nevertheless excited to share um, with you the work of my, my PhD. It's April 2020 and FAU is allowing skeleton staff in labs and offices at the discretion of the lab leaders. Meetings are virtual and today James Jaggard is presenting his graduate student thesis talk on cavefish sleep and creating a cavefish brain atlas with advisors, colleagues, friends, and family via Zoom. And so um, Astronix mexicanus are a relatively newly discovered species, first characterized scientifically um, in the 1930s when a survey crew going through the region discovered cavefish in one of the caves. And by the 1940s, scientists were really starting to go in and carefully investigate these animals. And strikingly in one uh, cave, they were able to find both cave-like animals, surface-like animals, and hybrids in between cave and surface. This really suggested for the first time that cavefish and surface fish were the same species. Today, the cavefish has grown from not only being a model for evolution and for molecular biology, but also for neuroscience and disease, with a center of activity here at Florida Atlantic University. As scientists delved into cavefish genetics behind eye and pigment loss, they also saw other curious qualities that added to the story. The cavefish can be described as insomniatic, obese, and diabetic, which suits them just fine in the cave environment. In other animals, including people, these qualities would be maladies, but for cavefish, they seem to help them thrive in the dark. In the past 10 years, the cavefish has emerged as a new model, joining the ranks of mice and zebrafish. I am Andrea Carter, and this is the story of the fish's journey from cave to lab, which includes the scientists that helped pave its way to becoming a significant scientific model used today to study genetics, neuroscience, and disease. This is part four of the Cavefish Chronicles, The Model. The cavefish is not the first fish model. Zebrafish, a tropical freshwater fish, have been used for decades to study neuroscience development and human disease. I had the chance to speak with Judith Eisen, a neuroscience pioneer who has worked with the zebrafish during her career. There are some things about the fish that make it a good model for neuroscience studies, she said. They have a small number of neurons. You can see the neurons grow and develop in the transparent eggs, and the fish lay a large number of eggs, and they mature quickly. The cool things about zebrafish is they have a small number of motor neurons early on, and those cells are individually identifiable. Well, I was the person with colleagues that I worked with who discovered these individually identified neurons in the spinal cord. And that was like really exciting. First of all, nobody had ever watched a vertebrate neuron grow its axon out in real time. So that was amazing and still amazes me when I do it. 
Historically, it has been the scientific question that has driven the animal being used in experiments. Before zebrafish, scientists studied squids for neuronal research because of their large axons, the part of the neuron down which the electrical impulses flow. Developmental scientists studied a range of animals from insects, frogs, and lobsters. With the molecular era, however, this range narrowed down to animals like the mouse and fruit flies. The creation of the knockout mouse by Mario Capecchi and colleagues in 1989 resulted in the mouse becoming the workhorse model to study human disease. I had the chance to speak with Dr. Capecchi about his historical discovery. The technology allows us to change any gene uh, in any way we want. Now, why would you want to do that? And that is uh, many, many diseases have a genetic uh, cause. Uh, sometimes it's simple, it's a single gene, sometimes it's a group of genes, so it's more complex. But if we can then change a gene, uh, then, uh, for example, disrupt it, and we, what we call a knockout, uh, then what you can do if the uh, organism survives is see what that gene does by what the organism now can't do. Okay, so if you're knocked out of function, uh, normally covered by the gene, you knock it out and then see, for example, if little finger disappears, we know we're in the program for requiring to make a little finger. And in that way, infer essentially what the gene is doing. And this allows you to model thousands, and actually now practically every human disease has been modeled in a mouse. And the one question you may ask is, why a mouse? And the mouse is a, a mammal, uh, so it's uh, very similar to us in terms of our development uh, and also even in gene content, for example, with respect to gene, we're 99.9% .9 the same. So whatever we find in the mouse is likely to be true also in humans, but, and if it isn't true, that also tells us what distinguishes us from mouse and humans. So either way, you win. So it allows uh, essentially an analysis of any genetic disease uh, and going at the source in a way that's not conceivable in humans. Dr. Kopecki, however, sees the value of using other models that can answer the questions better than, say, a mouse. And now, with new molecular techniques such as CRISPR-Cas9, scientists can more easily test gene activity in more types of animals. Every animal actually has a repertoire of things they, it can do that has been uh, selected for for that particular niche. And so, for example, some animals can see almost as well as we can with our eyesight, but they do it looking at a race of sound bouncing off of an object, okay, sonar. There are organisms that are resistant to practically any virus that you throw at it. Okay, what do they know that we don't know? And we certainly would like to know that. So I think one always wants to look at a lot of different models because each one is going to tell you something that may be of great use uh, to uh, human health. So that brings us back to the cavefish. Early researchers used the cavefish to study evolution in eyeloss because scientists had the eyeless cavefish and the surface riverfish to compare. This also led to genetic work. But they also have become a molecular model as well as one for maladies and diseases as the scientists began asking different questions. 
Nicholas Rohner, an associate investigator at the Stowers Institute for Medical Research in Kansas City, Missouri, began investigating cavefish metabolism after a visit to the caves in Mexico. He went during the dry season, when there is less food flowing into the caves, and noticed that the fish were very skinny compared to those he worked with in the lab, which were fatter and even obese. This led to the discovery that the fish metabolism had diabetic qualities. However, in the cave fish, this did not seem harmful, as it can be in humans. Yeah, so we just found that indeed they have high blood sugar and are insulin resistant and are glucose intolerant, which in humans you would consider diabetic, but in these cave fish it's not. It's part of their natural strategy to be starvation resistant and to grow faster and quicker and to basically, the idea is to shuttle their, so their skeletal muscles or their muscle are um, insulin resistant. And so that allows them to shuttle the glucose that usually would go into the muscle more into, let's say, the liver where they can make fat out of it. And so it's for them, it's just a way of, of getting fatter. If you learn to live with being insulin resistant for and having high blood sugar, for 100,000 years, you will come up with some solution to deal with it, right? And so that's what the fish have come up with. And so that's what we are currently studying, what these solutions are. But we are not used to it. It's just a few hundred years that we are probably even less. It's 50 years that we, are, that we, are, that we have this obesity going up and, and diabetes going up so, so strongly. So there was no time to adapt to this, right? So, so for us, it's a disease. For these fish, it's not. It's feast or famine in the caves. In many caves, fish have to wait for the rainy season for plant debris and food to flow in. Scientists believe the fish have adapted to this cycle by holding on to their calories as fat and staying awake when food is present. Eric Dubois and Alex Keane at FAU started studying sleep in cave fish when Eric was a grad student and Alex a postdoc at New York University. They were interested in studying how evolution may impact behavior. They decided to focus on sleep because the cave fish lived in the dark. They found that the cave fish slept much less, about 15% of the day, compared to the river fish, which slept about 55% of the day. After his postdoc, Alex headed to University of Nevada for his first professor position. Eric went to do a postdoc working on zebrafish, but encouraged Alex to keep working on cavefish. Alex said setting up the lab was challenging. It was really hard. We didn't have a lot of money, and so we got fish tanks that had been discarded from Walmart from the sky, like in the middle of the desert. We found on Craigslist. We had trouble even like figuring out how to get them to breed. Like I hadn't really done, you know, fish work. It wasn't really till I moved to FAU that I could start over, and I had money to build like a professional fish system. And then, you know, we were lucky enough to get Eric two years later, and then. Joanna a year after that, and I feel like that's when things really started to accelerate. Yeah, I'm just uh, putting some fish back. I was just running sleep on them. Back in the fish room, graduate students Evan Lloyd and Allie Paz talk about running cave fish sleep studies. We take the larva, um, and then we load them into these 24-well plates. Uh-huh. So each of them is housed individually, and then we put them under a camera on a light-dark schedule for 24 hours and just track their, their behavior over 24 hours. And then um, basically we'd find any, any bout of inactivity greater than a minute as sleep. Okay. And so in that way we can measure their sleep. Okay. Yeah. So if they're just kind of staying steady, they're not moving, that's exactly. what you... Exactly. And okay. we use a computer program to track all that. Okay. In the lab, we've found that the cavefish don't sleep. They sleep between like two and four hours a night. 
whereas the surface fish do more of the normal, you know, six to eight hours. And that seems to be tied very closely to nutrient availability. So the idea is these cavefish have evolved in an environment where when there is food, it is there for a while. But once there is no food, that condition also exists for a very long time, right? And so that goes back to the wet and dry season, where once you enter dry season, there's not really much nutrient flow into the caves. And so when there is limited nutrition, there's really no point in foraging. And so you'll see an increase in sleep, as opposed to when nutrient availability is high, then it's sort of like, okay, now is the time to, you know, gather what we can. And so you see a suppression of sleep. That's what has been indicated by our lab findings. But, you know, we've never been able to just go out into the caves and say, what are the water quality like and how is the sleep related to that in the natural environment? The group had planned to go to the Mexican caves in 2020, where the fish are from, and monitor their sleep using cameras over the wet and dry seasons, comparing studies done in the lab to observations made in the field. These plans were canceled because of the COVID-19 pandemic. At this point of the year, in April 2020, I am mostly talking to people by phone as well because of social distancing. I miss the days when I could actually go into the office. I checked in with Alex Keene at FAU to learn more about how the cavefish has become more than a way to study genetics, but also as a way to study disease and behavior. A recent project in his lab has been mapping the cavefish brain to learn what lights up during certain behaviors and how the brain may have evolved over time. So, so yeah, so one of the, the projects we're most excited about, which is this brain atlas. And so 100 years almost, people have studied cavefish. And they've identified differences in like how they look and their behavior, but they know very little about what's happening in their brain. What James did is he went in and scanned the entire brain of lots of different surface fish and cavefish populations, and then used kind of uh, this technology to build a scanning atlas for each cavefish population, and then compared how, how all these different regions of the brain evolved between populations. I think the other stuff that's really exciting is we developed these genetic tools that allow us to image brain activity. And so now we can actually go through and say, how do different stimuli activate brain regions within the cavefish? Eric Dubois and team are looking at another behavior, the stress response in cavefish at FAU. They are finding that Astyanx cavefish and the surface fish respond to stress differently. Fish get stressed just like us. When you place the cavefish in a new tank, they will swim to the bottom and stay there. When they feel comfortable, they will start exploring the tank. Comparing this time at the bottom and the time exploring gives the scientists an idea of how stressed the fish is. What he has found is that the surface fish appear to have more anxiety, perhaps because they have more predators in the wild. Comparing the cavefish and the surface fish gives insight on the evolution of behavior. They also measure the stress hormone cortisol levels in fish, the same stress hormone found in people. And you have one fish which seems to deal with stress really well, and you have another fish which seems to act more like an individual with anxiety disorder. So it's really this perfect system to try and correlate how naturally occurring genetic variation coincides with the propensity to you know, deal with stress well or not. In the spring and summer of 2020, Alex, Joanna, and Eric have had to adapt running their labs partially remotely due to the coronavirus. The strategy to kind of you know, overcoming this COVID thing and staying productive 
So just be really creative and, you know, start saying what questions can you ask? What things can you do from home? What things can you do in a limited capacity in the laboratory? So I'm actually in lab right now. I'm working as we talk, yeah. And how often are you going into the lab? Is it pretty regular? I'm going in, I'd say, about two or three times a week. It really depends. I had the chance to catch up with graduate student Ali Paz by phone. Anything I can do from home, I'm doing from home, but any experiments where I have to be in lab to do them, then I just come in just for that, you know, right. and I'll head back whenever I'm done. Allie has been able to balance her time, spending a little time in the lab and then most of the time at home. She is looking at behavior and stress in the cavefish and surface fish, specifically with the startle response. Taking care of the fish continues to be a priority. I think that the labs, are they like kind of, are, do you try to stagger with other people or how are you handling like social distancing in the labs? So we're doing a couple things. For example, we've got a group chat where um, we try to keep each other updated on when we need to be in the fish room, kind of because that's like the most cramped space. You know, it's not really possible to stay away from each other. Right. So we make sure that we're in there just one at a time and figuring out when's best. As I followed the cavefish story, learning about how the research field had expanded over time, I still wondered what had happened to Dr. Perahan Shadalu, the Turkish scientist who first bred the cavefish and surface fish together, beginning the study of cavefish genetics in the 1950s. Bill Elliott was the only person that I had spoken to who had ever met her. She had gone down to the caves with him in Mexico. Yet most of the scientists I talked with mentioned her work as a starting point for the field. I had expected her to have a long career fueled by these early studies, or at least find more information on her. But after a handful of a few key papers on cavefish genetic pigment studies, she seemed to disappear. The last paper I found by her was in 1979, which was about breeding methods for the blind cavefish based on annual spawning patterns. The paper listed her research institution as SUNY Stony Brook, and also, there was a National Institutes of Health grant awarded in 1980 to study eye development. But after that, nothing. The trail got cold. What had happened between 1980 and her death in 1998? I turned towards SUNY Stony Brook archives to learn more. She was listed as a research associate professor between 1978 and 1982 in the Graduate Bulletin. It stated her research focus was on the genetic control of eye development and cataract formation in the Mexican cavefish. I looked at some of the names of professors in her department and searched to see if they were still affiliated with an institution. This led me to Harvard Lyman and Eugene Katz, both retired emeritus from SUNY. Dr. Lyman wrote in an email that Dr. Katz was the one to talk to. I wrote him twice and did not hear back, but on the third try, he responded. The email said, Hello, Andrea. I knew Perihan very well, but it would take more than a few minutes for me to tell you about her. Do you have time? My conversation with answered many of the questions I had about Perihan. He said that he had met Perihan in 1963 at Brown University. He was a graduate student, and she was a senior postdoc, also called a research associate, working on her own. He described her as having a strong presence. Okay. I first met Perry uh, when it would have been uh, probably 1963. 
I was a graduate student at Brown University. And Perry was there, uh, I don't know in what capacity, but she, but she, she was there, uh, I guess the, one of the professors had, at Brown had been in contact with some other people that, to invite Perry to come to Brown, where she set up her own lab. So she didn't have a real appointment. I think she was sort of like a senior postdoc or a research associate. She she just worked worked by herself. But she but she was a presence. <laughs> How so? It sounds like she had a, a, a interesting personality. Is that? A... She, she is one was one of the most amazing women or my amazing people I've ever known. Dr. Katz said that they both worked under Herman B. Chase, but that Parahan was the only one working on cavefish. Everyone else was doing research with mice. He said that Parahan reminded him of the scientist Barbara McClintock, who won the Nobel Prize in 1983 for her work on maize genetics. Barbara McClintock always worked by herself. She never had any technicians. She never had any graduate students. And they asked her why. Why didn't she? She said, well, I can see things that other people can't. And I didn't trust anybody else with my stuff. And that was Perihan. She just uh, worked by herself because she didn't trust. She could see things that nobody else could, and she didn't trust anybody else to do it. Dr. Katz confirmed that Perihan's research focus was on Mexican cavefish eye loss and development. He described her as single-minded in her pursuit of science and dedication to the fish. As I say, the first step was to try and get the, the river fish and the cave fish to successfully mate uh, and produce progeny. And as I say, she, the, the lengths she went to to succeed in doing that were incredible. She was, uh, as I say, completely fearless, completely uh, um, dedicated to that work unlike any, basically any scientist I've ever known. In 1966, Dr. Katz went to study in Cambridge, England on a scholarship and ended up finishing his PhD there. Afterwards, he did his postdoc at Brandeis University and then got a job at SUNY Stony Brook when he finally got in touch with Parahan again. She was leaving Brown University for a reason he could not specify, and she did not know her next step. Dr. Katz helped her find a research associate position at Stony Brook. Although he worked with mice, he was intrigued by her work and helped her write an NIH grant that got funded. And so that was really good because she was able to really build a beautiful uh, fish facility. Uh, and we were, I was able to, to convince people that we should give her a room. We were in a brand new building. We had plenty of room to, to make, to create a fish room in the basement of Life Sciences Building. And and uh, there was, again, Perry uh, by herself, okay, <laughs> and, uh, and doing her thing. She was very uh, excitable. Uh, that may be an understatement. And uh, I loved her, okay, but she was very excitable. And um, when it came time for the grant to be renewed, they made a site visit. I've never heard that before or since 
for, for the NIH to have a site visit for an individual R01 because they couldn't, the, the NIH couldn't figure her out either. Okay. <laughs> they came, I remembered it, I remember it so well. Uh, we're in a conference room and Perry was, uh, was talking, her English was excellent and uh, was talking about her work with for these three, I seem to remember, three gentlemen. Uh, and unfortunately, I had to go teach. I was in there too, and I had to go teach, uh, okay, which I did. And by, <laughs> and by the time I got back, I wouldn't say all hell had broken loose, but at least Perry Hahn, excitable Perry Hahn, had told these people that they didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> if I didn't have to teach, I would have stayed in that conference room, and I could have calmed things down. But unfortunately, I was not, and I and it did not happen. And of course, her grant was not renewed. She continued working for a while in her lab, but as space became more valuable to the university, the dean finally asked her to leave. She wouldn't listen. And I tried to uh, persuade him to allow her to stay uh, unsuccessfully. Uh, she just kept she kept disregarding everything he was saying, and she just kept working, kept working in a, in in her in her room. And uh, I think she was at that point probably paying for things herself. And finally, the story has a very has a very unhappy ending, in that. Um, he finally uh, locked her out of the fish room. Okay. And so uh, that was the end of her research there. The fish died. Yeah. She never worked in science again. Dr. Katz thought that she might have done some odd jobs like cleaning houses. He said that they remained friends. He often saw her walking through town. She didn't drive. She always appeared so stoic. He said that he was astonished that she seemed so willing and able to just move on with her life after losing her lab and fish, but she did. He didn't know why she didn't return to Turkey. She had bought a house in Stony Brook and stayed. She never married or had children. She continued to live in Stony Brook. Uh, I, I knew her again and certainly continued to have as a family friend. Uh, and... Um, she was tragically again she she never learned to drive, so she walked everywhere and uh and it was typical Perihan. It was a, apparently a very rainy night, and she was walking from her home uh and she was um walking to a bookstore uh and she was hit by a car and killed. Dr. Katz could not say if she had kept in touch at all with her advisor, Kurt Koswig. When I asked if she had ever wanted to be a professor, he said that prestige and fame never seemed to interest her. All she wanted was to be alone with her fish, he said. She didn't seem to have ambition to be a professor, just to work with the fish. He described her as a nursemaid to the fish, caring for them like children. Everybody who met her <laughs> was affected by her. I mean, I say a, for real, a true force of nature, extremely friendly, extremely proud, very proud of, of Turkey 
and being Turkish and uh, uh, just had this incredible I don't think of the right find the right words but just uh, scientific curiosity I think would be okay and but just wanted to be left alone okay she was not seeking fame or or I, I'm so happy to hear from you because I I thought she was you know now sort of lost to the world and I was that 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 has made me very sad I uh, every time I go by I know I know the place where where she had her accident uh and every time I go by it I think of her okay uh and uh, uh I think it's it's one of those stories in the case of Barbara McClintock, it ended up with a Nobel Prize, and with Perry Hahn, I sort of had the feeling that she that that her life was lost forever. So for you to call and say that you were interested in Perry Hahn Shotaloo, uh, I, I got uh, shivers. Okay. <laughs> I told him that the research with the cavefish had continued after Parahan, and that the field had expanded. He said that he hadn't followed the story, but thought that Parahan would be so pleased to know this. So I'm delighted, at least, that the people working now still do uh, do talk about her. So that's that's a legacy. That is at least some legacy for her that she that she did more than deserves. Looking back, I think of the generations of researchers that have cared and worked with this fish. They form a kind of Astyanik's family research tree, connected through the cavefish. In this way, Dr. Shadaloo could be considered a matriarch. Fathers of the field, William Jeffrey, Bill Elliott, and Cliff Tabin, have been mentors to young professors like Joanna, Eric, and Alex, while they continue to train the next generation of researchers who are asking the next generation of questions. And I think somewhat excitingly that um, this work has really led to more questions than answers. And it's opened a lot of different doors. I think that the cavefish are sitting at kind of the, the basement right now and we're, we have nowhere to go but up in understanding really complex behaviors that we see in these animals. I'd like to thank the, the people who've uh, suffered and enjoyed all the great memories and love with over the years. And, especially thank Alex. Um, I met him, I think, when I was 20 or 21, so we've known each other now for nearly a decade, and uh, I first uh, joined, uh, it was an advanced neuroscience class when I was still a biology major, and I had no right to be in the room, basically. It was mostly graduate students and seniors, but that was my first neuroscience class, and I remember the day I took it, the first class, I, I switched my major uh, to neuroscience from biology. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, the graduate students who uh, moved across the country from Nevada to Florida. I think for all of us, it was a, a rough transition at first, but we really became uh, like family during that move. And you guys uh, kept me sane during those first few years. And I've just enjoyed uh, working and being your friends uh, so much over the years. New members join the family each year, working in labs and pushing the science forward. What brings them all together is this curious fish. James Jaggard is off to Stanford University to do more research on the cavefish. He will be looking at brain activity when the fish are awake and asleep. Alex Keene is now biology department head at Texas A&M University, and Joanna Kowalko, a professor at Lehigh University. Their studies, along with Eric Dubois at FAU, and labs around the world will continue to contribute to the Cavefish Chronicles. 
This podcast was made possible by a grant from the National Science Foundation and was produced by myself, Andrea Carter, edited by Sam Houghton, with original music by May and Willa Mincer.